Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Frank Worrell to the show. Dr. Worrell is the current president of the American Psychological Association. He is also a distinguished professor in the School of Education at the University of California, Berkeley, where he serves as faculty director of the School Psychology Program and the Academic Talent Development Program. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey, learn more about his experiences in the APA, and hear the advice he has for those interested in the field of psychology and those who want to become more involved in the APA. Dr. Worrell, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about your education and your journey. One of the fun things that I get to do in preparation for all these interviews is look up everything that you've done. And you you have a wide variety of experiences. But uh, I read someplace that you were born in the port of Spain, Trinidad, and you originally wanted to become an English teacher. Tell me more about your life growing up in Trinidad and how you found your way to the University of Western Ontario in Canada. Yeah, so thank you for that question. You know, um, both of my parents were born in little fishing villages in Trinidad and Tobago, um, very poor families. And in fact, when they moved to the capital, they were living in the sort of the equivalent of a favela in Brazil, you know, a ghetto region and, and so forth. The only um, running water in the house came in the tap in the kitchen. Now, a shower was outside and all of that. Um, and they worked very hard. My mom eventually became an elementary school teacher. She went to teacher's training college, was only two years and became an elementary school teacher. And so the idea of hard work and education was always very, very important in that, that household. And so I was going to school and doing pretty okay, you know, in elementary school. I was not the most diligent student, to be really honest. Um, <laughs> But work came easily to me, and particularly English was my favorite subject. And so then I go on to secondary school, and that continued to be the case. And so I decided I want to be an English teacher. So, you know, I like, you know, I like education. Um, it's sort of in the family blood kind of thing. And that's what I was going to do. So I wanted to, um, I was going to study English, which is offered at the University of the West Indies Trinidad campus. But I was at a school concert in Trinidad um, at Calypso time, and uh, Calypso is our national music. And a student was singing a Calypso criticizing the school administration, which is perfectly legitimate. But in the middle of his performance, he stopped singing and he started cursing the principal, the teachers. And, you know, they, he was rushed off stage. And, and we were all left, wow. And I didn't know him personally. I knew his face. I'd seen him around, but he was not a friend of mine. And he never came back to the school. And so there was, you know, he was on drugs. He had had a mental breakdown. There were all of these questions. And I was like, well, you want to be a teacher. So perhaps you should study psychology alongside English because that would be a good thing as a teacher to know, to understand. We didn't have psychologists or even counselors in the schools in Trinidad at that point. And so it's because of actually wanting to do psychology that I had to leave Trinidad because psychology was not offered as a subject, even undergraduate at the University of the West Indies. And so my parents agreed to let me um, 
pursue um, uh, higher education outside the country. I'm the first in my family, the third of four kids. I'm the first to go to college. And so they agreed to let me go to Canada. It was cheaper than the US and the UK. So, so Canada was default. And University of Western Ontario accepted me. I hoped to go to the University of Toronto, but they didn't take me. They turned me down. <laughs> so I ended up at the Western. And it was perhaps one of the best things that, that the cosmos ever did for me because I would not trade my education at Western for anything in the world. Well, it seems like it because later on in your career, you even went back and you actually helped out and, and advised there later on as well. Um, we kind of go chronologically in order here. And so you all already told me a little bit about that uh, uh, incident that actually started you thinking, well, what if I became a teacher to help somebody like this and wondering why? Did you ever find out why? What happened with that student? What what happened? No, I never did find out. But, you know, one of the most interesting things that happened was um, uh, last year in February, I was interviewed by uh, um, uh, one of the student reporters here at Berkeley for um, Black History Month. And they posted the interview online. Um, you know, the Daily Californian, I think, is the name of our paper. And it was picked up by somebody. I don't know how people are paying attention, but it was posted on the listserv of my high school, my uh, the Facebook group of my high school in Trinidad, my secondary school. And so there was this big debate actually in um, there about the fact that I had said I was gay and people saying, why did he mention that? And I always knew. And there was a whole sort of debate going on around that. But then they, the story, they turned to discussing the incident. And there were people who said, I remember I was at that concert. And I remember, right. and somebody said, he became a teacher. <laughs> but the oh. young man, and I have I never saw him again, but somebody said that he did become a teacher himself, <laughs> that young man. So that's un that's unreal. And you know, a lot uh -huh. of things happen when you're on stage. Uh when I was teaching, um, stage fright comes into play. And and so that sure. could have been something, or it could have been a combination of that and other things as well. But it's always interesting to find out if you ever connected back with that other person. I yeah. know that uh, I don't know. But he set me on a journey that um, that really has was changed my life. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. And you have uh, quite a diverse journey as I'm looking at uh, the other screen here as well. Tell us a little bit more about your undergraduate studies and, and you know, what caused you to kind of um, change direction and pursue psychology instead of becoming an English teacher? Right. My life is a, a set of chance incidents or coincidences, uh, you know, uh, chance events that, that, that point, point me in the right direction. Um, so I started off doing English and psychology, but I was doing more English courses and I did an intro a psychology course. And in my freshman year, my father, so as I said, my parents didn't have a lot of money and I was the first going to college and I'm going out of, out of the country. And my mother had hoped I would win a scholarship, a national scholarship, which would pay, which I did not do. My grades were not the best. Um, and but they agreed. My father took over. Um, my father took over paying for me. He, you know, he retired already. He started working two jobs to pay for my tuition. My mom took over the household expenses and she was still working as a teacher. And in my First semester, my father sent me, uh, and this is pre-phones, we didn't have a telephone, sent me a letter um, indicating that there was this thing in the paper advertising scholarships in Canada, Trinidad and Canada, both members of the British Commonwealth. And so there was a Commonwealth scholarship and I should apply for it. 
And my response was, I called the neighbors who had a phone and had dad come across. And I said, but you know, I'm sure this is for grad school, you know, and stuff. And my father, but he's paying. And he says, apply. It doesn't hurt. Right, right. So I applied and I didn't get it. And, um, you know, I got a, a nice thing back saying, thank you for applying. This is typically given to graduate students and, it, uh, and, and so forth. So then the following fall, <laughs> my father wrote me again and said, that scholarship is in the paper again. <laughs> you <Right>. should apply. <laughs> no use arguing. I applied. But I think what made the difference is now I had my professors from freshman year wrote letters of recommendation. Mm-hmm. I never did see those letters, but I think they must have been very good <laughs> because um, I actually got put on the shortlist, um, you know, um, and then eventually did get that scholarship, which paid for my junior and senior year. But it was for psychology because psychology was a discipline Trinidad did not have. And so I went from being sort of an English major and a psychology minor to a psychology major and an English minor and stuff. So that's how I actually ended up going um, all into psychology. But my undergraduate studies, I really enjoyed. I think one of the things that's in the British system, your final grade is dependent really on your final exam. So you're working all year, but your grade for the year is dependent on how you do in your final exam. So when I got to Canada, that was the first time that the idea, you know, um, I write an essay now, you know, early in the semester, it contributes to my final grade. And I think I needed a little bit of that extrinsic push. So I, and I also needed to, my mother had actually um, guilted me big time about not doing my best in high school. So I vowed she would never be able to tell me as she had said to me um, at the end of, when I got my high school grades, you did not do your best. I have nothing to celebrate. That, those were the words. Um, so I I worked very hard, and the Canadian system is a little bit kind of like the British system, but the American system. So we had year long courses. So intro psych in most U.S. universities is a, a one semester course. In Canada, it's a one year course. Developmental psych is a one year course. So I have far fewer courses on my transcript, but you got to go into them in depth, both mm-hmm. and, and in the English department as well. And so you really got a really good sense of a discipline. Um, and um, and so I really enjoyed my undergraduate studies in Canada. I also took a couple anthropology courses, including one on peoples of the Caribbean. And it's interesting thing to look at your country from sort of outside <laughs> right. and through the eyes of um, lenses of, of researchers. <laughs> It's interesting, yes, and and I know that you you eventually graduated with your BA in psychology with honors, the University of Western Ontario, and then you decided to stay there and uh, pursue your master's degree. So, at what point during your undergrad did you know that you wanted to continue graduate studies in psychology? Uh, again, another interesting question that there was serendipity. So, I had decided uh, to the honors degree in Canada was four years long. And it was typically done if you were going to grad school. Now, I had not been thinking about graduate school because even though I was mining English and I liked and I decided I like psychology a lot, I had thought, well, I'll be going back to Trinidad as a teacher. And you know, that was going to be fine. But in my senior year, we were told, you know, as a, a honor student, you had to do a thesis. Mm-hmm. And so you had to do a thesis. And so I decided that I had this English and psychology love that I was going to marry those two for my thesis. And I proposed an uh, an evaluation study 
there was a writing program in the English department that helped undergraduate students be better writers. And I was going to do an evaluation of that study for my psychology anesthesis. I thought it was a brilliant idea. So I had an advisor in English and an advisor in psychology, and they met for the first time. And I learned about university politics. <laughs> my advisor in psychology was a full professor, tenured. My advisor in English was an assistant professor new to the university and was given this program to run. Mm-hmm. They met for the first time, and the English professor said to the, the assistant professor said to the full professor, if the evaluation is not positive, I don't want it published. Now, I wasn't even thinking publication. I'm doing a thesis. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought publication. My psychology advisor said, I cannot agree to that. And so my thesis fell apart. I walked home that day in tears. Oh, and I had to cobble together a thesis, but I'd been doing pretty good work. So I didn't, I had wanted to get the thesis prize, but I didn't, I, I didn't even have a shot. So I did not get the thesis prize. But it turns out there was a gold medal in psychology, which I didn't know existed. Um, and I actually graduated top of my class in psychology. <laughs> and so um, one of the things that came with that graduating top of the class was an invitation to do graduate work at the institution. Oh, okay. And so then... I had this chance of doing a master's degree, and I thought, well, I'll get more education in psychology. This will be useful to me. So I convinced um, the powers that be in Trinidad, because I owed them service after my two years, my junior and senior year that they had paid for, that, you know, if they'd give me, you know, um, a bit of a spare, you know, give me a, a year more, they'd get a more qualified person <laughs> for their investment. Okay. Well, that's interesting. It's uh, It fell apart. It sounds like your thesis uh, fell apart. But in the end, you graduated at the top of your class and, and uh, it eventually was pulled together. And then eventually, after you received your Master of Arts in Educational Psychology, you attended the University of California, Berkeley for your doctorate in Educational and School Psychology. So I know that there are many schools in California that offer graduate programs in psychology. Uh, why did you decide on UC Berkeley? So um, I did my master's in educational psychology and my plan when I went back, I went back to Trinidad and um, I was um, a teacher for a year, a teacher and a school counselor. I was an English teacher (laughs) and a school counselor for a year. And then the second year I was back in Trinidad, I was principal of what we would call a continuation high school in the United States. So it was private, but um, the tuition was very low. These were kids who had been kicked out or flunked out of the regular school system. And so I was principal of that school. And I got very interested in the factors that pushed kids out of school, right? Mm-hmm. Why did kids not graduate? And so I decided I wanted to do some research in that area. Um, between my undergraduate thesis, my master's thesis, I discovered I really loved, enjoy doing research. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to go back and do educational psychology. My plan was to apply, go back to Canada, and probably go back to Western and do my PhD. But my best friend from Trinidad, <laughs> at secondary school in Trinidad, was at Berkeley um, in the law school. And he said to me, are you applying to Berkeley? So I hadn't really thought about it. So he sent me the Berkeley catalog. Okay. And I read through the catalog, and they had educational psychology, but they also had school psychology. Uh-huh. where you got all of the research training, but you also got clinical training. Uh-huh. And at this point, I was still convinced that I would be living in Trinidad. And I was like, oh, this is something Trinidad doesn't have and would benefit tremendously from. And so I ended up only applying to school psychology programs. 
again, within the United States. School psychology was not that big in Canada at the time. And I, I did a, apply to several schools, um, uh, Berkeley, I, Texas at Austin, uh, Wisconsin, Madison. I also applied to Stanford. It turns out they don't have school psychology, but they never sent me their catalog. I tried, I phoned, I did everything I could. I never did get it. So I applied to Stanford and they turned me down because I applied for a program they didn't have. But I got into Berkeley, Wisconsin and Madison and Texas at Austin. But I got a teaching assistantship at Berkeley. Oh. And so that really made the decision because that was actually going to at least allow me to pay my rent <laughs> every month. <laughs> so I got a teaching assistantship. And so, you know, that and the fact that I knew I'd, I'd know somebody in the area because my best friend was at the law school here. So um, that's that's how I ended up at Berkeley. Very serendipitous. All these stories are, are all you see the interconnection uh, between two or more people. Yeah, um, we have you know we have a talent development mega model that we've we that's called we have a some colleagues and I have a talent development model. It's one of the areas I study. We talk about the importance of chance, uh, taking advantage of chance, mm -hmm. and so opportunities present themselves. And the question is, do you take advantage of that opportunity when it presents itself? <laughs> right. Right. I think of uh, what's that movie? Uh, yes, man, uh, saying saying yes to almost any opportunity that uh, comes your way. Right. I'm looking at your uh, CV on the right screen here, and so I did notice a, a lot of the relationship and the time you spent at St. Mary's College, that secondary school in in, mm -hmm. in Trinidad. And am I pronouncing it right? Tobago, Tobago, Tobago. Okay, uh -huh. and you served as a teacher there as well as a counselor, and then you served other administrative roles there as well for a number of years. And so we're going to come back to that in a second. But I, I see, like I said at the very beginning of our uh, um, interview, a wide variety of experiences. And and before I go into that, what was the most important? So in summary, you went from your uh, Master of Arts, and then you went to Berkeley, even though you applied to multiple uh, uh, schools. The reason you went to Berkeley was obviously you got to pay you got to pay your rent, and so that right. TA ship uh, definitely helped you. Were there other factors? If that was you know that's number one given, but what mm -hmm. other factors came into play when you were selecting a graduate psychology program? Well, one of the nice things was that they all um, all of them had people who were interested in schooling, but but personally became my advisor at Berkeley, actually studied dropouts. So she was somebody, so her, she had a research interest mm -hmm. in um, in dropout prevention and, and, and so forth. So, so she had written papers in that area. And so that was, um, you know, another thing that made it, you know, this is somebody who can support me in, 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 in pursuing this particular interest. Definitely, definitely. And so here's a time where I can ask you any mm -hmm. advice for those seeking a graduate degree in psychology, any specific advice for them, especially, I know your areas are educational and school psychology, but generally speaking, those who are interested in psychology, any advice for them? Right, yeah, I would say um, to take a broad look at the divisions of APA. So for example, the work that I do here um, in, in dropout prevention, one of my colleagues, as I said, my advisor was doing it. She was a school psychologist, but there's somebody in clinical psychology here doing that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so that take a look, a, a broad look at the what you want to do. Decide do you want to do just uh, basic research? You know, what, what your interest is? Do you want to do um, clinical work? Do you want to do a combination of both? And and choose look at the advisor sometimes we just look at the quality of the institution more broadly mm -hmm. but you want to look at the department 
what's, what support is going on in that department and what, what's the advisor, the person you're working with, what, what are they doing? We encourage the students who are applying at Berkeley to speak to our students without us present so they can get a sense of what it's like being a student here. You're committing yourself for five years. So you are actually, as much as the place is choosing you, you are also choosing a place where you can be comfortable, where you can do a lot of work that's difficult, hard, you know, and stuff. So you want to choose a place that is supportive and that, in fact, you'll be comfortable in. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, the other thing that I've heard throughout my interviews on the podcasts are, yes, I find out more about the program, the school, the culture, and then talk to the students, talk to the staff and the admins as well, because the right. admins know really what's ha happening behind the scenes. And they're, yes, they're the yes, they do. And yeah. then um, the other thing that uh, I'm just adding to some of the brainstorming that uh, and the advice that you gave, one other thing is look at the areas of opportunity for um, uh, funding. You, you mentioned right. TA-ship, yes. fellowship, Definitely. other scholarships, uh, working in labs. I know that more and more graduate, uh, if you're applying for a graduate school, they are looking for students who have some of that lab and actual Right. Uh, As an undergraduate, yes, you want yeah. to get some of that lab experience. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that's going away as a deciding factor more and more actually is the funding issue. I mean, Berkeley just made the decision last year. So this academic year is the first one where every PhD student is getting five years of funding. Oh, okay. That's um that's the that's the floor that where we start. And so and 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 we didn't get there. There are many of other institutions that were there before us. And I think, you know, and I think this is going to become much more common. Mm -hmm. Um but one of the things I've shared with the students, because several of our students now that they're getting full funding were like, well, why should I do a research, you know, be a research assistant or a teaching assistant? And there were two reasons. Yeah. One, that in fact, the funding formula is premised on at least some people working, right? right. Everybody doing nothing is not, we don't have the funding for that. But the other thing is that, in fact, you are in training. And that what you want to do is you're building up skill sets. So if you are never a research assistant or never a teaching assistant, when you graduate, you're going to be less competitive. You will know less than your peers and you'll be less competitive for postdoctoral positions, for academic positions, right? You really want to take the opportunity when you are getting supervised training in these areas. You know, this is where you learn to do what you'll be doing on your own. You'll be running your own lab someday. So working in somebody's lab and seeing how they do it and how you want to do it and the things you want to follow and the things you don't want to follow are important lessons on the journey. That's very good advice. The other thing that I'd, I'd add to that is not only becoming a TA or a TF or a research assistant in the lab, it also helps you to find somebody who's actually doing work similar to yours and finding a great mentor. So yeah. just because you get that five-year funding, and, and I should I should speak to this because when I went to grad school, the max back then was three years, and then it slowly went up to four. And now that I'm talking to you, more and more uh, schools are offering four to five years, which is actually very nice because doing your doctorate in less than three years, especially if you're having, uh, if you have kids, family, and you're working outside, right. is very, very difficult. So uh, getting that five your funding is is uh, rare, but to your to your point, hopefully it becomes more of the norm. Right, and I, I would say so. Our student, our pro program used to be such that students used to be able to finish in four years. Now it's not possible at all, really, unless you come in 
um, already having a school side credential and, and getting some things waived, which and we have far fewer of those students. We often take students straight out of undergrad. But um, because the things you have to learn right now, there's a requirement of a full-time internship, right? There's an advanced practicum. And before the advanced practicum, there's a basic practicum. So, so there are a number of things that, so it's now not possible. Our students used to do their internships in years three and four. We used to split it. And now the students have to do a full-time internship in year five. And so, you know, so trying to get through as much of their coursework and dissertation and stuff in those first four years before they hit the internship um, and so forth. Yeah. I should add one other thing for uh, prospective students. If you're undergrad and you're considering going on to grad school and you're not sure whether or not you want to just go for your master's or your doctorate, Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Worrell, but my sense is that there is more funding available if you apply to a doctorate program than a yes. master's program. Yes. Yeah. So we are not funding our master's students at this point, at least, and certainly not fully funding them. Um, the doctoral students, the PhD students in particular, are, are, are getting funded. Um, and the, you know, I've had a couple of students who have not finished. We had, I had a student, I think at the end of his second year, he came to me and, and he said, you know, I know you're going to be very disappointed, but I've decided this is not for me. I want to be a principal <laughs> and stuff. And, and, and I, I said, why would I be disappointed in you? I'm glad that you recognized it at the end of mm-hmm. second year, not at the end of fourth year. Right. <laughs> so he is now, a, you know, he went, he went to an administrative credential program. He's now a principal and and happy as a clown. Great, great. <laughs> so that in fact it really is a you know incumbent upon you, I think, to find what your passion is. Um, but applying for a doctoral degree is going to give you much more funding than applying for a PhD, uh, a master's. The other thing I would say is that it's important to remember that you may get your PhD in a particular field, but that does not limit necessarily limit your choices. Mm-hmm. So um, there's somebody who graduated just before I did who has spent his entire academic career in social work, in the social work department. He does work on, on violence and so forth. Um, I have so, uh, two of my graduates are forensic psychologists. That's the kind of work that they do. Their PhD is in school psychology. But you get a skill set, right? right? And there's a graduate of our program actually who you know, was a, a life coach and he had a, he did a radio show. I mean, he, 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 you know, he did, he put together this thing, you know, that where he was serving the public, but really not doing clinical work or academic work, but mm-hmm. interviews like this, interviewing people, writing columns and, and so forth and, 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 and prov- providing career advice to individuals. So using the skill sets he's gotten in a way that he enjoyed doing. Yeah, and you brought up something that came to my mind as well. A lot of people think that, hey, how do I determine if I should go the PsyD route or the PhD route? And PhD means that I have to stay in the academic world. No, we're breaking the barriers now. You, a PsyD can become a teacher and vice versa, or you can go outside and do, you did a lot of consulting as well, administrative work. You stayed in the academia throughout all of that as well. And so you can break the mold and- exactly. Uh, and and don't be brought down or or bogged down, I should say, by thinking, oh, PhD or PsyD. There are advantages because de- depending on what you know you want to do, each of those programs better prepare you for right, that. Right. So. Uh, ideally, I said to our students that if we do what we are supposed to do, ideally, if you came in here wanting to be a practitioner, but you change your mind as you graduate and want to be a researcher, you should be able to do that and vice versa. So you um so if you think that research is in your possible future, 
it's not a bad idea to do the PhD where they stress the research. You don't have to be a researcher when you finish. But if you decide to be a researcher, you've had the research training. Again, we've had people who have left here and gone to Facebook and other places because they use researchers as well and so forth. So that, sorry about that. Um, the, <laughs> there's a, a siren there. The, I'm right by the wall. And the, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, um, so that, in fact, again, you have skill sets that you can use in a variety of contexts. Another graduate of our program worked at ETS for a number of years, Educational Testing Service. So, mm -hmm. so that think about the skill set you want, right? Not just the what the title of the degree is, but the skill sets that you want and things you might want to do in the future. I noticed in your uh, CV that you completed your postdoctoral work in clinical training at the Center for Educational Diagnosis and Remediation, or CEDAR clinic, within the College of Education at the Pennsylvania State University. So tell us, a lot of our guests usually ask, well, how do you find all these opportunities, especially for postdoctoral? Sometimes it's set up for you and, and your school and your department help you. Yeah. But I ask you, tell us about how you found that opportunity and tell us a little bit more about that experience. Yeah, no, again, serendipity. When I was finishing, I was an international student, which means that I actually could do one year of, of, of work and then leave the country if I, you know, I could, um, unless I got an academic position. Mm -hmm. So I went on the market. I had decided um, as I was finishing my PhD, it became very clear that if I intended to continue to do research, even to help Trinidad, that going back to Trinidad would not be helpful because they didn't have the infrastructure. Um, and so, so I, I actually applied for academic positions. But one of the things that I, you know, in interviews, you ask questions because it's important in a health service, psychology, clinical counseling, a school to get licensed. Even if you're not planning to do private practice full time or anything like that, getting licensed is something that the American Psychological Association likes of its the faculty and accredited programs. And Penn State, where I went, actually had a clinic. Their, their counseling psych program used it, their school psychology program used it, and the clinical psych program actually had a clinic as well. So, so I, as an assistant professor, so I was an assistant professor at Penn State, but because the head of the school psychology program at Penn State was the director of the clinic, was a licensed psychologist, and we saw clients, I was able to see clients in the context of my work as an assistant professor, which is not always possible. So it was, it was a great way to get both, you know, be doing my academic work, but also be in the same place, being able to do the clinical postdoc work to get licensed, you know, as I work towards licensure. That's great. I, that's the first time I actually heard of somebody uh, being able to do both at the same time. So Right. Uh, and there are a number of places now that are having clinics. So, now, you know, Penn State is not the only one that has its own clinic. Actually, the Penn State School Psych Program has gone away. Um, it's been um, terminated. But, you know, it's school psych programs are expensive, you know, doctor only programs. And so um, it's no longer there. But um, it really, I mean, there are a few schools that do have these clinics. In fact, we have our, our clinical psychology program here at Berkeley has a clinic and we school psych our school psych students actually do some training in that clinic. We have now made a partnership so that our students can do some work on campus in that clinic. Well, it sounds like it. I know that uh, you have a wide variety of experiences in academics as a teacher, instructor, 
researcher in all levels of professorship, as well as I mentioned <laughs> clinical and consulting work. Uh, I read in your Vita and some of your other websites that you're actually a teacher and a counselor, as I mentioned, at St. Mary's College. Uh, you also have served as a lecturer and visiting professor around the world in such places as Trinidad, Australia, China, Slovenia. Many people believe that you have to choose either the academic route or a non-academic path, but you're breaking the mold and you're, you're, you were doing both actually at the same time for some time. So tell me your thoughts on this, whether or not somebody has to go the academic route or the non-academic route. And then what have you learned from working in and outside of academia? Right. Yeah, I do think you can choose both. And what's interesting is that academia, a lot of people don't realize that if they're not familiar, I didn't know about it till I became an academic myself. Academia gives you the option of being both. There's an expectation, there's a recognition that you have expertise. <laughs> and that expertise is um, something that may be useful, right? And so at a place that, like UC Berkeley, where we see ourselves as a global institution, not just, um, you know, a national institution, but that part of their goal is for you as an academic to use your expertise beyond the institution. Um, and so typically as an academic, you get about one day a week to do a variety of things. And so I've been a school psychologist, you know, I've done school psychology services for districts in Pennsylvania when I was at Penn State. Um, I've done the work, I worked with the Ministry of Education in Trinidad Tobago, as I talked about. We've actually normed instruments for them so they can diagnose ADHD and, and, and um, conduct disorder and so forth using Trinidad and Tobago norms rather than American norms. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my research actually is cross-cultural and cross-national. And so because of that, so in China, in Slovenia, in Australia, there are people who, you know, who have I've worked with the, at Australia, you know, um, the person who I worked with there, he does talent development work. Um, in China and Slovenia, um, I've done work with my time. I do work on time perspective, and I have colleagues who do that work here. In fact, one of somebody I've co-authored with in China is currently here at Berkeley for this academic year as a visiting professor, <laughs> um, you know, with me. And I've been I've been over there with him. And so we are designing a cross-national study where, you know, we're going to be looking at students here and students in China. So, so, so there's a lot of opportunities that are out there. As you said, don't let the, the title or the sort of constrain you. There are lots of possibilities for what you can do. And if you're at a research one institution, they are often fine. I mean, I dabble in music. I don't have any degrees in music, but um, I've gone to Trinidad and been judging the uh, in the preliminaries for the music festival. Um, and, and, and Berkeley was fine to let me go. My classes were covered and so forth. You make the arrangements, but yeah. That's that's great. That's exciting. I'm going to share my screen real quick for everybody. Uh, what I'm sharing is your um, profile page or your uh, page at Berkeley School of Education. Um, very good information on um, some of your background. And then I wanted to highlight a couple things that you already brought up. You you highlighted some of your areas of expertise. One of them that I'm going to ask you about uh, time perspective a little bit later on. But then you also mentioned scale development and validation. A lot of people just assume that when we take these, uh, um, uh, go through some of these uh, studies, fill out these forms or these scales that you can apply that to any other culture, even within the United States. And that isn't necessarily the case because we have subcultures within the United States, let alone going over to Trinidad or Australia and doing some uh, uh, development on those uh, scales over there. So tell us 
What's the most interesting thing that you found while you were teaching and or um, working in these other places, Trinidad, Australia, China, Slovenia, and any others that I didn't even uncover? Right. You know, I think one of the things, and, and, and you know, it's not so much I uncovered, but um, I think I uh, confirmed a belief I had. Um, I hope it's not confirmation bias, but um, <laughs> that we are very, you know, although we differ in many ways, right, culturally and so forth, we are actually very similar in many ways. And so, for example, being hopeful about the future is a useful or adaptive um, trait. It predicts resilience, whether it's in Slovenia or in Australia or in Trinidad, right? That there are some constructs that are, if you want to call them, that are sort of almost universal constructs, motivation, right? The importance of effort. And so in uh, certainly the education sphere or the work sphere more generally, right, if you think about, um, you know, the Qatar right now with the, the Soccer World Cup going on, right, all of these teams, I mean, they're learning the same skill sets, they're practicing hard teamwork and those kinds of things and their skills matter. And then, and and it's the same set of skills, right, even though they're coming from very, very different cultural backgrounds. Right. And the same thing occurs in, in, in academics. And, you know, we can think about the Olympics and those kinds of things. But, you know, getting a PhD in, 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 in Germany, I mean, they have fewer courses and much more research centered. But at the end of the day, they're trying to get you to the same set of skill sets so that you have the, you know, you can do research as an independent researcher. So I think that's a, a really important thing that I found, um, you know, that be it from China to <laughs> to South Pacific. <laughs> well, it sounds like it. And we're getting more of that theme is we're more alike than we are different. And um, that's what's kind of nice. It brings people together. Uh, I know that um, one thing that um, I remember reading about and then uh, seeing your frankforapa.com. Uh, I actually like that website. It's still there. It's still up and running. I don't know if you know, but it's still yes, there. Yes, yes. It's, it's, oh, I know it's there. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I pay the I pay the, the fee every month, but um, yes. <laughs> I thought it was but important I, to just stay there while I was in the presidential cycle. So Yes, definitely. You have a nice smile on there as well. And one of the things that you did say in that video is you had the ability to bring people in and collaborate from different departments. And what really connects people is sharing the similarities and, and bringing up the similarities between and among uh, the different departments and or people if you were uh, in negotiation like that. So one thing that I wanted to bring up, and, and you kind of already brought it up, is that you decided, hey, I wanted to go and apply for an academic position, because if you could do that, you could stay in America and the United mm -hmm. States longer. So you already mentioned that you applied and you your first professorship was actually as an assistant professor in the School of Psychology at Pennsylvania State University. And then you remained at Penn State from 1994 to 2003 as an assistant and associate professor before going to UC Berkeley as an associate professor in cognition and development. Uh, what brought you back to UC Berkeley? Uh, it was one of those interesting things. My um, The UC Berkeley School of Psychology um, uh, the program is a little unique in the sense that most programs, most school psychology programs use behavioral theory as their underpinning. And, and, and the Berkeley program uses developmental psychology rather than behavioral psychology. And um, so they had uh, an opening coming up. Uh, they had this opening and they were beating the bushes, encouraging, because one of the things you may not know about academia is that 
universities, if they don't have a successful search, sometimes the department can lose this position, right? It's not guaranteed. So they like to get lots of applications, right? So they, they were beating the bushes. And of course, they were looking for people who had were interested in developmental psychology as a framework. And okay. so many of us, they, so many of us who had graduated from the program applied. Right. So we were encouraged to apply, really, whether we were thinking about going or not, you know, but right. we were encouraged to apply. <laughs> and so I actually did not necessarily see myself as competitive, right? I had just become an associate at Penn State. And so so I applied. And then I became one of the the finalists. And so and and so yeah, then I took it more seriously and 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 ended up being the successful candidate. Um, but I mean it was not in the cards. I had no, you know, I hadn't planned to do this, to come back. <laughs> well, Dr. Worrell, I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see a website about Frank for, um, you know, your position <laughs> at UC Berkeley getting that position, but that would be kind of fun to, to see. That. <laughs> hey, you should, you should uh, uh, vote for me, you know, and right, right, right. But um, you served in, in administrative roles and teaching research roles at UC Berkeley for over 20 years now. And you're currently a distinguished professor in the School of Education, where you serve as director of the school psychology program and faculty director of the academic development program. And one final thing I should add here, you also served, I think it just was last year, you you stopped uh, um, uh, your involvement with the or serving as faculty director of the California College Preparatory Academy, and you were there for about thirteen years. Um, Actually, me- I'm still faculty director of oh, California. I, yeah, okay. I was going to step down, and then I changed my mind. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. <I'm> still- <laughs> I'm just going off of your CV, so I yeah. yeah so you know. I need a check. I think I may have put an end date on it, but that 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 end date doesn't apply anymore. Okay. <laughs> All right. You've already talked about your program a little bit more, but here is the question that I had dedicated for you for a couple minutes on, you know, tell us more about the school psychology program at UC Berkeley and why students should consider attending that program if they are interested in psychology. Okay. Um, I think you know we try to do a number of things, and I I. I I, as I say to students who apply and who ask me, why should I come here rather than some, somewhere else? I said, I can't tell you why you shouldn't go somewhere else. I can tell you what we try to do here and what we try to do well. Um, and I think there are a number of things I think we try to do well. We actually try to integrate science and practice um, um, really well. So we have um, as core faculty, both researchers, you know, leading researchers in various fields, but we also have people who work part-time in the schools. So the person who is teaching the IQ testing, you know, the cognitive testing class, I'm not teaching it. I, you know, I'm not doing any private practice. I'd have to do a lot of studying to, to give an IQ test. You know, I haven't given one in, in a few years, um, you know, because, um, but the people who are teaching those classes are people who are using those skill sets every, every week. They are in the schools. And so they work with us, you know, they're PhD psychologists and so forth who've chosen practice and so they're teaching faculty so we have this teaching of clinical faculty and the research faculty and so you get the benefit of both of their the the, both groups and their years of experience okay as i said we use developmental psychology as our base which is relatively unique i think there are a few other programs that do that because it's really important to understand um the you know the kindergartner the the you know the intervention of the kindergartner is very different from the intervention with a, a high school student but understanding you know, so so um one of the things you have to do in california is that students have to have 
um, field placements within elementary school, in middle school, and in high school, so that they actually get to see the range of student functioning. And then our students sometimes do work with adults as well. So, you know, um, and, and so that the idea of this lifespan development is developmental psychology. It's Berkeley, so of course we 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 take social justice, um, equity, inclusion um, very very seriously. It's been a long, long been a, a concern and a strength of of this academic institution, and that continues to be the case to the present day, and certainly an ecological perspective, right? So the the Bay Area, you are near urban districts, low income urban districts, but you're also near wealthy suburban districts. So students get you know, and so a diverse um, 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 area to 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 do their work in um, and get experiences in. So I think those are some of the things that we 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 try to do really well. And students are doing clinical work or pseudo clinical work from the very first semester. So they are in an elementary school in in year in in the first semester of their first year, um, doing primarily observation and so forth, but understanding the school as an ecology. Okay. I wanted to point out one thing, even though I mentioned your title a number of times, I talked about uh, Berkeley uh, education and psychology. And so I wanted to share my screen one more time. And here's Berkeley, California psychology and the graduate program, and then some of the graduate program information on the right side here. And then the separate one for School of Education. And so I just wanted to make that clear to our audience members. Right. So, yeah. So um, my main appointment, school psychology, is one of those things that can sit in either psychology departments or, or schools of education. Um, same thing for counseling psychology. And in counseling psychology and school psychology, I think about 60% of their programs are in education schools as opposed to psychology departments. But we can be neither. Um, and uh, so that's important to know. It's always good to check out both schools if you're interested in a graduate psychology program. Okay. Well, good. I'll put these links up there as well when we uh, go live. Uh, but I wanted to make that clear to everybody. So as I mentioned in the intro, you are current, uh, you're currently the APA president. And for those of you who don't know, um, the, the, the role that they play, um, well, I, I should stop before I go into that. Many people aren't aware that when you run for one of these positions, especially the APA president, you become a president elect and then you become president, and then you actually become past president. So right, right. now you're you're almost two thirds the way through your your commitment. Oh, here. more so, than that. Um, yeah. yeah, my my, I, I become past president on January one. So <laughs> it's coming up soon. It's coming up. Soon. Coming up soon. <laughs> yeah. Now I should give a little background for those who are listening and or watching the podcast. You've been active in, at the APA for a long time, serving as a member of, at large of the board of directors. I believe from 2016 to 2018. Right. You served as president of the APA's Division of School Psychology in 2007, and then on the APA Council of Representatives representing that division from 2010 to 2015. I believe now you're a member of seven APA divisions. You have fellow status in five of those seven, and you have served on multiple APA committees, boards, and task forces. So not everyone wants to lead an organization like the APA. So tell me, why did you want to run for APA president? Again, uh, it, it it came about. Uh, it was uh, it was one of those things that I had not. If somebody had said to me ten years ago you'd be running for APA president, I would have said, not on your life. And in fact, <laughs> up to a couple of years before I actually ran, people would say, are you running for president? And I say, the 12th of never. <laughs> and that's a long, long time. You know, 
one of the things that happened um, is um, my parents were very big into service. And so, um, I, I, you know, it's uh, and, and then my advisor was very big into service. One of the things, in fact, we do here in the program at Berkeley is students, all students have to serve on a committee. So it could be the conference committee, the um, admissions committee. So again, the part of your training is that you actually contribute back to the community, right, that you're in. Um, and so I started serving on um, a couple committees of Division 16, the School Psychology Division of APA. And I, then I was asked to run for president. And and I was like, well, and they were like, you never win the first time you run, you should run. And I ran and I won. <laughs> and I became president. And so I served as president. And then uh, when I was past president, as one of the duties you often have as past president, I'll have the duty for APA next year is to run the elections. Mm. And so I was running the elections for council and we had a very distinguished psychologist who wanted to run for council, which we thought was a great thing that he wanted to do. But you have to have two candidates on the ballot. And so once I'm running the election and I'm trying to tell, get people to run and they say, Who's, who am I running against? And I tell them, they say, no, 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 I'm not running against this person. And so the deadline is coming up. And so I said to um, the, the executive committee, I said, you know what? I'm rotating off. So I'll put myself down for the council seat. I'll run against him. I'll be the sacrificial lamb. He will win <laughs> and, and, and things will be fine. And I voted for myself and we, I won by one vote. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I won the election by one vote. So that's how I ended up on council. It was not planned. It was so funny. I actually had to do a red eye because I had scheduled to give a talk the night before council began because I didn't think I would be going to council. <laughs> and so so while I was on council, then I'm again on the Division EC. And, and one of the things we had been talking about while I was president and we continued was that School psychology was not that visible within APA. We're a small division. Um, many people don't understand. Clinical and counseling psychologists don't understand what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And so that it would be important for us to gain more visibility. And one way to do that would be to run for higher offices, which included the board of directors. So um, when at the last year of my council's term, <laughs> I put my um, thing in the hat for 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 the board of directors and it was really funny because um i a friend of mine was also running for a position on the board and and she asked me if i would help her put out some um of her material campaign materials and so we put out her poster with you know summarizing her service and a pen with her picture and those kinds of things and and then she says to me this is because council was the one voting at the time and she says to me okay i'll help you put out your material i said i don't have any she said, what do you mean you don't have any i said i didn't know you were supposed to campaign right right so she said well, you're not going to win i said well i didn't promise to win i just promised to run <laughs> but i actually and i think my music played a role here i was conducting the council choir and i think so i all of council knew me <laughs> you know so uh you know so um I, I i ended up winning um that um and got became a member at large on the board and so I got to see then the board and the president running the meetings and so forth. And, and again, seeing that there's, this is something that you is within your purview. And so as I ended my term, you know, the school psychology community and division in particular was like, we should consider, you should consider running for president. I said, I'll give it some thought. So I rotated off the board in 2018 and 2019. I, you know, I agonized. And then I decided early in 2020, I was going to do it. 
And that's the I ran. Of course, I'm running and then COVID hits. Right, right. right. Stuff. So I ordered, I have um, a box of about 1,500 buttons at home because I started campaigning and then ordered the buttons and COVID came and the box arrived and I never got to go to any conferences to hand out my buttons. <laughs> <laughs> while you're, while you're uh, telling us a little bit more about that, I already referred to your frankforapa.com website and, and it should be popping up on the screen. There's that big, nice smile that I was talking about. I listened to this video like five or six times. And one of the things that I really took from that video was that, um, the APA and the APA president need to be inward and outward facing to continue the substantial transformational changes in the organization. And I that stuck in my mind. And then um, I, I looked at your about page and I, I laugh when you mentioned uh, that you had the buttons. So here, if you scroll down, you're going to look at a little bit of narrative here. And here right, are your buttons. There's a button. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> You could download the buttons and a good summary of your career, your CV, your flyer as well. And then you obviously had some good endorsements as well. So yes, um, yes, I was. Yeah, it it must have been quite a quite a thrill uh, going through that to finally realize, oh, my gosh, this this could be real. This, you know, instead of thinking, oh, I'll be the scapegoat here. I'll, I'll go ahead. And do that. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I, I was lucky. One of my um, former advisees served as my co-campaign chair, and um, she had been president of our undergraduate institution, the student government at the undergraduate institution. And so uh, they forced me into doing things I wouldn't normally do. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though. That's good. Get out of your comfort zone. That's yes, what you got to like do. That. So, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to ask you this question, but I, I, some people don't like looking back at their uh, career or their, you know, their um, position is now ending. And so I would say something along the lines, as your presidency comes to an end at the end of, I think, three weeks here, somewhere yeah. around there, um, as it comes to an end, what are some thoughts uh, on your experiences, your mission, your goals while serving as president of the APA? You know, I you know, I think I I can look back, I think, with a sense of pride. Um I as I made the point that you need to be both inward and outward looking. And so um talking about inwardly, one of the things that I had wanted to do, you know, we have AP, of course, the our council has 170 something members. Mm-hmm. And so and they represent the full diversity of the United States, not as diverse as the country is, but you know, there are representatives um of most groups there. And we also have the full sort of political spectrum from conservative to liberal <laughs> or to progressive, depending, you know, uber conservative to progressive or whatever. Um, and and sometimes we have been less than civil with each other. <laughs> so, you know, as we, we, you know, have views that are very, very different. Sure. And so one of my goals was that, in fact, everybody's voice would feel heard. Everybody would feel that their voice was heard at the council meetings. And I think I was able to accomplish that. I mean, it really is something, I guess, for others to really answer. But I, but people did say to me that, you know, who's, you know, who are not, you know, when we had a vote and their, their, their side did not win the vote, you know, so that the motion that they supported didn't pass or the motion that they did, did not support passed. They said that they, they they felt their voices were heard. Good, good. In the discussion, and so and 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 so we had, um, I think, really positive meetings. People left the meetings actually feeling positive um, about what happened, about the discussion, um, you know, and so forth. So, so I think that that's one thing that was useful. 
it was also, I think, um, useful um, looking outwardly, for example, one of the things, um, I think it was after either the, maybe it was the Buffalo shooting. You know, we've had so many mass shootings. We have so many mass shootings in this country a year um, where I suggested, you know, we typically do these press releases. Can we do something different? And we actually took out a full page ad in um, the U.S. News um, with alongside um, eight other associations and National Association of Social Workers and National Association of School Psychologists to say that we need to do something that this is not just APA saying this. This is other professional associations saying this. When, in fact, Congress passed a legislation earlier this year, the limited legislation on, on gun violence, we actually submitted comments. And, in fact, we had 59 other associations actually sign on to the comments that we submitted. So that this idea that, in fact, we are speaking with one voice as a community of people, mental health professionals, psychologists, other kinds of, you know, um, researchers and, and so forth. And I, and I think that that's really important. Um, so, I'm, uh, so both the outward looking and the inward looking, I'm, I'm pretty proud of. We spoke out against anti-Semitism and the anti-Asian hate and, and, and so forth. Um, we commented on, on you know, Roe versus Wade, we recognize as a religious issue for some, but it's also a psychological issue that women who have um, don't have the right to choose actually are more likely to experience anxiety and depression. And we can bring sort of the scientific the psychological science to bear on these issues and, and and share that with the public. So 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 in the role you know don't know what's going to come at you, but when you you need to respond when it does come. And and I think I've been able to do that. Um, the association has been able to do that. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm proud of the year we've had and I'm I'm glad I, I made the decision to serve at this time. Well it sounds like it. And one of the last comments that you did make in that video when you were running was I believe that I have a reputation for consensus building, bringing disparate voices together in harmony, not only in music, but also on committees and task forces in council and on the board of directors. And so it sounds like you were able to do that. Uh, for those of you who are interested in uh, some of the stuff that you have accomplished as APA president, uh, there are a number of different uh, uh, websites on the APA that uh, talk about that. And I'll get to one of those in a second here. But before I move and transition to that, um, is there anything that you wish you would have had more time to work on? A year goes by, maybe at the time, it doesn't seem like it goes by fast, but in retrospect, a year is pretty short, you know, serving as president. And that, uh, that that's just been, I, I brought up, I was curious uh, in preparation for this uh, interview, you know, has it always been a year? And I went to the former APA president's website on APA and everyone is just a year, one year, one year, one year. Yeah. And so is there anything else that you wish you had more time to work on? Um, not really. I mean, so I have two task forces that are not going to quite complete their work this year, um, that they'll complete their work next year. Mm -hmm. One of the, um, one of them is, um, on violence against trans women of color. So, you know, that one of the things that has been happening in our country, one group that's been targeted a lot have been trans women of color and trans people more generally, but there have been, um, the murder rate has increased for trans women of color each year for the past decade plus, um, and another one is on um, the use of, of, of psychological testing and race-based norms. And so they're both going through their process of reviewing the literature and, and to come up with recommendations and so forth. One of the things I think I said in that, I think I said in that video, um, the APA presidency, I think often 
used to be about the president. And I think for many people, it was sort of the pinnacle of their career, right? And so this was a way for them to do something big and splashy that they would want to do that would, you know, last for a while. And I think that that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. I see the APA presidency as, uh, as, as more of a service role. We talk about, you know, the police service, the civil service, you know, and so to protect and so the teaching service, right? And that's very much my orientation. And so that you are not just serving as APA president, but you are serving APA and serving psychology. And so that you are coming in in a tradition. So in 2021, we passed an apology to people of color for APA's role in perpetuating racism and, and discrimination. We also passed a resolution saying that psychology will work to end societal racism and discrimination. And so those are big, big things that can't are not going to happen in a year or two or even in five. Mm-hmm. They require a, a consistent commitment over time. And so when I talked about inward facing, one of the things that in fact I've been we did this year is we passed the racial equity action plan. So we had the apology last year. We then acted on that apology to, to come up with a plan, and then we got council to pass it this year. And then we're going to start working on it next year so that this work will continue past my time. So it's not just about your year as president, but I think what you have set the organization up to do into the future. And I think that's the way I think, given the nature of the kinds of problems we're dealing with. Climate change is one of the things AP is working on. Systemic racism. I mean, you know, mass shootings. All of these are huge societal concerns that are of importance to psychologists and society and that we are going to need to work on consistently over time for multiple years if we are to make a dent. Very well said. I know that uh, serving society is an obligation of the APA now more than in the past, instead of uh, focusing more inward and only the in-group, only the people that are part of the APA get to benefit. No, now now we're uh, helping society as a whole. You mentioned one thing, and I know that uh, at the end of this year, you will uh, transition over to Thema Bryant. As yes. the mm-hmm. uh, next yeah. uh, APA yeah, president. Yeah, she pronounces it Tama. So, uh, Tama, thank you. Yeah, Tama. Thank mm-hmm. you. Tama Bryant. And so tell us what your role is going to be next year uh, as you become past president. And, and tell us, uh, you know, what your day looks like uh, as past president of the APA. Right. Um. So one, uh, you know, so you... Hopefully, my, the number of emails I get will go down. Um, <laughs> you have a number of duties, right? So I, you're still a member of the board of directors, so you attend all of the board meetings. You're expected to, to participate as a board member. You actually will also um, attend other meetings, um, you know, the consolidated meetings of council and all of those. Um, one of the unique tasks that I will be picking up will be um, the becoming chair of the elections committee. The past president chairs the elections committee, and we have multiple elections across the year. The elections for board and committee members, um, sitting boards and committees. There's elections for the council of representatives. There's a presidential election, um, and so forth. So there are a number of these elections that run across the year, and as um, and I will be chairing that committee, which is made up of past presidents and the sitting past president chairs. Um, the, you know, um. I will, um, many things I did this year, you know, um, I did a lot of videos, for example, a conference, you know, the Middle East, Middle East Psychological Association, for instance, had its conference virtually this year. I actually did a welcome <laughs> for them, but I, you know, I taped it. Uh, so a number of things by Zoom, um, I will be doing, you know, so many of those duties will pass to the president. Um, 
you know, and, and stuff. But it's interesting because your past president year sometimes can be as busy as your presidential year because there are a number of people who had wanted me to come visit, but I couldn't come and visit while I was president because I had too many things to do. So they've asked me to come visit next year when I'm past president. <laughs> so 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 you do spend um some time um sort of facing outward as well, um, even though you are not the sitting face. You know, I will not be the one who will be. Um, doing the press releases anymore, for example. So that will fall to Dr. Bryant <laughs> and so forth. So, so there are some things that fall off your plate and other things that come on. Well, I know that uh, you recently had some actions uh, still serving as APA president, including awarding presidential citations to outstanding psychologists mm-hmm. and more recently appointing six new members uh, of the Advocacy Coordinating Committee, or ACC. So first, tell us a little bit more about these presidential citations. What are they, and how do you decide to whom they should be awarded? Right. So presidential citations are a way of saying thank you and recognizing the work that psychologists have done. Um, you know, people have done outstanding things. So um, you have... Um, uh, uh, and when the, I, the citation actually tells says what the person has done, so I think one of the first ones on the the list is um, um, a name that I uh, Tina. I'm not going to try to pronounce her last name here, um, <laughs> but she was teaching psychology in secondary schools and did a lot of work, you know, to in fact help the high school curricular working group come together. Um, Christopher Beasley, who is another one, who is the second one on that list, for example, he and the person after him, Jason Cantone really pushed council to pass a resolution removing the, what is it, you know, banning the box. So we used to ask, have you ever been convicted of a crime Mm -hmm. uh, on the application? And so what it does is then, so for graduate students who were, let's say, did something as an adolescent or a young adult and, you know, got convicted on something, then they get put into this different category and they have to then send in all of the stuff that they've done. And, And this really is a way... Rather than bringing people in, it's excluding people. They've paid for their crime. We don't need, this is not helping us to know this information. Sure. And so Christopher Busey and Jason Cantone led the fight in, you know, so, you know, in, in doing that. So, so um, interestingly enough, Jason, um, um, so I, I knew that Chris was doing this because he was trying to get the council to pass it. So I thought it was going to be a good idea. But Jason was the council member who led the fight within council. Sure. So I actually um, gave an, a citation to both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I am actually going to be giving out some citations to people suggested. Many times, early career psychologists and grad students don't get these because you have got to done done substantial stuff. But we have grad students and, and, and early career people have done a lot of things. And so I asked the career and early career psychologist and the committee on early career psychologist and the APA graduate student committee to recommend some names to me. I'm going to be giving those citations out. Um, before the end of the month. Um, so it's really the, the the names can come from from other individuals. Um, the International Office recommended several people when we had the climate summit in Bogota, Colombia in July, uh, June of this year. Um, I gave out a number of citations to people who are doing um, interesting work in different countries. So instance, the um, a psychologist who was president of the Filipino Psychological Association has really led the fight to support LGBTQ plus people 
in the Philippines. Um, um, same, I did a citation for somebody who did similar work in Albania, right? Um, I gave a citation to the president of the Ukrainian Psychological Society. They've been dealing with, you know, supporting their citizens um, in the midst of a war that continues, for example. So, 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 you know, so, so people make suggestions and so forth. And uh, so you get them from a variety of sources and some of them you know about yourself. Okay. Well, that's good. That's a good summary. I had never even considered. And I, I, I remember going through grad school and, and reading about citations. And uh, while I'm, while you're researching and as a researcher, a citation is different than this citation, but in sense, in a sense, they're similar because you're actually making a citation to make note of Right. This, you know, this uh, work done by these individuals. Yeah. The other thing that you did recently was the uh, appointing six new members of the advocacy coordinating committee. So tell us a little bit more about this ACC. Uh, so we are aware of what what is happening with this committee. The advocacy coordinating committee is a relatively new committee um, of APA. Um, and in fact, um, it really is a committee of the APA Services, Inc. Um, so when we think about APA, there are really two associations. You mentioned um, the contributions to society, right? APA is a 501c3, a tax organization that is supposed to be doing societal good. Mm-hmm. But we also, I suppose, we, we also want to serve psychologists mm-hmm. and psychologists. And so, but 501c3s are not guilds. So we are also our APA Services, Inc. Every member of APA, their dues get split is a member of both APA and ABA Services, Inc., which you'd see on the second line there. Right. Um, and so APA Services, Inc. is our, our guild association, which is fact looking for the interests of psychologists. So trying to get um, higher reimbursement rates for, for practitioners, getting funding for researchers, you know, and so it does, it, it lobbies Congress and those kinds of things. It can do that kind of thing. Um, and the Advocacy Coordinating Committee um, is our committee that leads the charge with our advocacy office in there. So every other year, for instance, they do um, a survey of APA members. What are the things that you think psychology, APA should be advocating about? Mm-hmm. And so uh, this year, I believe what, what they, the survey was done earlier this year. I think they got something like in the order of 12,000 responses wow. that they then have to put together and, and say what are the common themes and you know and which are the most common and 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 come up with the advocacy priorities that in fact will inform the organization for the next two years. So that's what that committee does. And you want, of course, that committee to be a diverse committee that's representative of the breadth of not just psychology, but ethnicities and races and 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 sexual orientations, and in fact, all of the the different bits that human beings are made up of, right? All of the things that make us unique. Yeah, you want all of that to be represented on that committee. So Dr. Worrell, I have to ask you, with all of your roles and responsibilities, both at UC Berkeley and in the APA, describe what a typical day looks like for you and and how will it change come January 2nd, I think is a Monday, so. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, a typical day um, looks like, I mean, I. Typically, the one somewhere between one and four or five meetings that they, of, 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 of with APA um, different groups, depending on the particular day. So, um, the finance committee of APA met on Friday and Saturday, for example, okay. and the treasurer, who is also a member of the board of directors, chairs the finance committee. 
but the president, the past president, and the president-elect attend the finance committee. So I was at the finance committee on Thursday evening, all day Friday, all day Saturday. Um, but um, on days where I don't have those day-long meetings, I typically have, you know, like today is Monday. I've had, what, two APA meetings, I think, already today. I, tomorrow morning, I have one at 8, I have one at 9, and I have one at 1. That's APA. Um, and then, of course, in between that, I'm sort of I'm scheduling my Berkeley work. Um, I'm not teaching this year, so I have a teaching leave. I'm not on sabbatical, but I'm not teaching. Um, so like this morning, um, after I had a student's um, oral examination, <laughs> okay. so, you know, for two hours. So, um, and, you know, the thing that's actually been getting the shortest shrift is writing. <laughs> my co-authors um, not, are not always happy with me this year and last year. <laughs> Um, hopefully I'll have a bit more time next year, but that's, you know, that's the thing that's uh, been doing the least amount of, you know, the, the getting um, articles and chapters written. Well, I'm going to share my screen again, because I know that even though you've uh, um, been busy with the APA, it hasn't slowed down your academic scholarship at all. If I share Google Scholar with everybody, here, you should start blushing a little bit because in the year 2022, you've had over 24 or 26 uh, um, uh, publications. And so on Google Scholar, look at all the 2022. Uh, and then we finally go down and we have to go to show more to finally get to some of the 2021 articles. But uh, you mentioned a couple of things, gifted children. You've also talked about time studies mm -hmm. and uh, you mentioned that before. So that's something new to me. So I'm showing my ignorance. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you say time studies. Right. Um, so there are a number of constructs that are really involve time, although we don't think about it that way. So one of the most common psychological constructs we know about, for instance, is self-esteem right? Um, do you have good self-esteem? Well, what is self-esteem? Your thoughts about yourself at the current time. So it's a really present-oriented construct, right? Um, we also talk about, you know, sort of goal orientation. Well, what's goal orientation? It's how I am in the present thinking about where I want to be in the future. So really, there are a number of these constructs that are temporal or time constructs that we study. Um, for my dissertation, um, I, I, you know, I, I, as I said, I came to study um, uh, dropouts. I looked at what were factors that would predict staying in school versus dropping out for kids who are at risk. And what my dissertation data showed was that students who had hope, who believed that the future was going to work out, were more likely to stay in school, even though they were at risk, right? Because they thought that the future was going to work out. Now, interestingly enough, one of um, a colleague who had written about dropouts uh, a couple of years earlier had described the students from underrepresented groups who stayed in schools as more politically naive about society, you know, and, and you know, and stuff. And I argued that what she was calling naivete, I would call hope, optimism, or hopefulness, because. While, yes, racism may exist, if you get the high school diploma, you're more likely to get a go to college. You're more likely to get a job that turns into a career and so forth. So it may be both, but it's not only naivete, right? There's a benefit sure. for us. Um, and um, so, one of, um, so one of the things I study is hope. Um, more recently, um, and uh, building on the work of, of Philip, Philip Zimbardo, um, the Stanford Prison Studies, um, he actually published an uh, an article talking about, um, he introduced an in instrument, the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory. But the important claim he made 
um, two very important claims in that article. One was that just because somebody's present-oriented doesn't mean they're not future-oriented. You need to measure them separately, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And so, so you need to measure them separately, which means you need to measure all of them, and you need to look at the profiles. And so we have an instrument called the Adolescent and Adult Time Inventory. And in that instrument, especially the time attitudes, we measure positive and negative attitudes towards the past, present, and future. And we've used some statistical techniques, cluster analysis, latent profile analysis, to show that there are adolescents and adults who have who are optimists, who are pessimists, who are you know we call balanced, who are um, present um, 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 negatives. They're negative about all the three time periods. <laughs> who are positives, right? Who are delightful? You know, they 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 just look at the world through a very positive lens. And our work has shown that those profiles predict behaviors and other attitudes. And so, for example, when we've done some longitudinal work, if I am a positive, I'm 12 and a half years old. We did our longitudinal study, 12 and a half to 13 and a half years old, right? If I'm 12 and a half years old and I stay in the positive category and positive, I'm less likely to engage in um, problematic drinking. I'm less likely to pick up smoking. I'm less likely to engage in in other problematic behaviors. Whereas if I move from a positive to a negative profile, I'm more likely to do those things. If I move from a negative to a positive profile, my behavior, my my maladaptive behavior is decreased. Right, right. So so, so it's a really important... Here go the sirens again. Um, that's what you get for being in an urban environment. My apologies again. But, um, the, you know, so it's a really important construct. Interestingly enough, our scale has now been translated into, I think, about 14 languages. So we have shown these findings in New Zealand and in Slovenia. And we have data from China that we have not analyzed. We have data from Iran. that we've, um, We have data from South Korea that in fact is showing these same patterns, the United Kingdom, Germany. So so these, as I talked about these universal constructs, seems as if time attitudes are among these constructs. We have data from Nigeria and from uh, Ethiopia. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to be able to look at these things and see what is similar in these cultural contexts, but also what's different. One thing that I did find uh, while I was doing some research on the time perspective is one thing that you did bring up already, the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory, and and he has a book out here that talks about this as well. So thank you for explaining that a little bit more. I will add some more uh, uh, links uh, of the ones that you provided. I wanted to bring uh, everybody's attention back to your this wonderful page. I know you like seeing yourself right there, big and bold and smiling, but I'm going to scroll down a little bit because I have to give you some accolades here. Um, you have over three, what was it? 3,000? Oh, 300, was... 300 publications. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, you should have just left it. You should have just said, <laughs> oh yeah, 3,000. No, 300 <laughs> articles or book chapters so far in your career. You were recently awarded the Distinguished Lecturer by the National Association of School Psychologists in 2022. And you also received the Scholar Book of the Year Award from the National Association for Gifted Children, or NAGC, in 2019 and 2020. And down here, there are two of them. So one of them is this one, the talent development as a framework for gifted education. And then the other one that received that award is right next to it. 
And this is the psychology of high performance, developing human potential into domain specific talent. So that must have been pretty exciting to receive those awards back to back. You can say that, Dr. World. Right. Back to back, I received <laughs> yes. this year, you know, this award. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about either one of these uh books and then uh we'll move on. Right. Well, you know, so um one of the things I think people, you know, gifted education sometimes gets a bad rap. And, um, you know, and, and I think in large part because many times gifted um, education programs are not as diverse and often have individuals who are um, from affluent backgrounds and so forth. But it really has to do, we think, with opportunities, right? There is an achievement gap and, and, and stuff. And one of the things we think gifted education can do and public education is, is to, in fact, get more people from underrepresented backgrounds in. Um, um, I was lucky. I'm lucky enough to have a number of wonderful collaborators, and uh, two of two of them, Paula Olszewski Kabilius and Rina Zabotnik, are, are co-editors on both of those books. Mm-hmm. And we actually first started writing together back in 2009, I believe it was. Uh, our first published article was in 2011, and it was um, introducing where we introduced the talent development mega model. And basically, what we wanted is we wanted the gifted education community to benefit from what we have learned in other domains, athletics. So if we think about gifted education, the NBA, National Basketball Association, is are gifted basketballers. NFL are gifted footballers. You know, so we wanted to bring um, the, the scholarship from those, uh, the, the lessons learned into gifted ed. And so we did that 2011 article, and that's what led to those two books. So the uh, the, the the talent development book is written for practitioners, right? And so we have things about working with rural, you know, in rural settings and working with um, children of poverty and so forth. Those are the kinds of chapters. Evaluating your gifted education program. So really aimed at people in the field who are doing gifted education work in schools and school districts. And then the the um, psychology of high performance was aimed more at researchers, right? We are talking about that this is in fact a particular area of psychology. How do you go from you know having a talent to becoming one of the top talents in the world? What are the things that are involved? And so in that book, we um, covered, I think, uh, four major areas. We covered, I think, the performing arts. We had dance, um, um, dance and acting. We have we have um, the product production arts. We have um, drawing um, and uh, the culinary arts. <laughs> we actually have um, the professions, medicine, uh, software engineering. We have academics. We have psychology as a, a late starting domain and mathematics, which is an early starting domain. Students mm-hmm. don't typically in, encounter their first psychology class till a high school and me, uh, like me, maybe college. Right, but you encounter mathematics from preschool, right? And so, 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 so it was really to say, what are the commonalities here? You know, the last chapter in the in that book talks about what are some of the common threads that are in the literature, and then what are some things that are more unique to some domains than to others. Well, thank you for that summary. I did find that original article that appeared in Psychological Science in the Public Interest. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That actually uh, was in 2011 with your uh, co-editors. 
Uh, and it's actually labeled, or the title is Rethinking Giftedness and Gifted Education, a proposed direction forward based on psychological science. So um, I'll, I'll put your CV, a link to your CV on our website as well. I wanted to bring up one other thing here on uh, this page right here. And this is the Cambridge uh, Handbook of Applied School Psychology. And we mentioned school psychology and educational psychology. And at one point during our discussion, you said, you know, the clinical psychologists don't really understand what we do on the school psychology side. So this was back in 2020. Uh, tell us kind of in your own words, how do we differentiate, um, you know, school psychology from clinical or applied psychology? And that kind of leads me to kind of a follow-up question. Many students don't even understand, hey, how do I decide which branch or field of psychology I should go into? And I would say it's almost the reverse. You find yourself in that area right. or branch instead of seeking that out first. Right. So uh, tell me a little bit more about uh, your thoughts on what is school psychology kind of high level summary and and how does that different how does that differ from clinical or applied psychology? Right. So so let me do um, a little bit of a distinction here. Um, we make um, sort of we have sort of three sort of broad strands um, of psychology that we talk about. So we talk about sort of um, sort of basic research. Right. So we, you know, so, so that there are some domains like, um, you know, that are, they're doing just bench research. They're not the laboratory based studies. They're not doing real world stuff. They're developing fundamental principles. Sure. Then there's applied research, right? So, you know, I, you know, I may be a developmental psychologist who's just studying development, but I may be a developmental psychologist who is working with in, you know, to, to help children you know, make friends better. So I'm ap applying that world, work in the real world. So there's applied psychology. And then there's what we call health service psychology. And health service psychology really encompasses three major strands, um, clinical psychology, counseling psychology, and school psychology. Okay. Clinical psychology, uh, I think is, you know, um, school psychology is as old as it, but clinical psychology typically focuses on psychopathology. Right. So uh, depression, anxiety, all of these sort of major issues that, in fact, affect humans negatively in some sense. How do you treat those things, make people better? So psychotherapy is an in integral part of, of clinical psychology. But the focus counseling psychology is very similar. It sort of sits between clinical and school in that. But counseling psychology also added a focus on self-actualization. So how do you support individuals who may not have major concerns about you know, some a major major depressive disorder or something like this or personality disorder but they you know so but they want to be their best self <laughs> mm -hmm. right and so so you are helping them become better at what they do in fact a lot of counseling psychologists work in university counseling centers when students have mild crises or so forth or you know and and, and stuff or you know I'm, you know I need better ways of studying and those kinds of things school psychology is really tied to the K-12 system. So it's a more context-specific psychology. But be, in that way, it actually has, is, is often much broader because if a child is having anxiety, math anxiety, for example, that's the school psychologist. But if they're having a reading problem, <laughs> academic problems, that's what's to psychology, right? And if the teacher is having problems teaching this classroom, you know, behavior management, that's school psychology and the school climate 
if there's a poor school climate. So school psychologists are generalist. Mm-hmm that really are pulling from multiple domains, social psychology, developmental psychology, and so forth, in the context of schooling to facilitate students learning, teachers teaching, right? We want to make the the academic enterprise, the enterprise of schooling, learning better, easier for teachers, for students, for parents, for administrators. And so that's what school psychologists do. Now, that's how I think they started off much much more disparate in some sense. But what happens is, as as happens over time, there are many clinical psychologists and counseling psychologists who they've studied, they've done their degrees in that, but they're interested in school-based practice, right? And similarly, there are school psychologists who have gotten training in schools, but then who decide, I'm going to set up my shingle and do psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. All three of those major health health service psychology um, um, subdisciplines get the same kinds of training. It's where the where's the emphasis placed, okay. right? So clinical psychologists get more emphasis on psychopathology than the other two. Uh, counseling psychologists get more emphasis on sort of um, self-actualization than the other two. School mm-hmm. psychology get a much more emphasis on school-based practice than the sure. other two. But, you know, and stuff. But, but the, they can be doing interchangeable work. So your point about how students know where to choose is decide what you want to do and look and see who's doing that. And the person who's doing that, so there are people who apply to work with me who also apply to developmental psychology programs because much of my work on the time stuff is, is developmental, right? Um, so, um, but they may, so they may, may apply to work with me as a, a school psychologist, but they may apply to work with um, Dr. Omania Taylor as a, a developmental psychologist at Harvard, or they may apply to work with somebody else at another place who's a clinical psychologist who's doing similar kinds of work. Mm-hmm. So um, you really choose the, you end up in a program that your advisor is involved in, in some sense, but but that could be different programs. So I do, um, I have an affiliate appointment in social and personality work. So some of the work I do on hope, for example, and um, and on, in cultural psychology is much more akin to work that's done in social and personality psychology. Well, thank you for that. I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to this again because I liked how you laid that out um, for everybody. The differences between and among each of those disciplines. Uh, I appreciate that. Looking toward the future, Dr. Worrell. What other goals do you have for yourself um, inside and outside of academia, within APA, within UC Berkeley? What other goals do you have? You know, that's an interesting question uh, sitting where I am, right? So as I said, I had no intention of running for APA president. And so, so, I mean, you know, I hope to continue to serve. I mean, I don't need to be president and stuff again, you know, but maybe I'll be on task forces. At Berkeley, I'm sort of at the top of the top of the ladder. I'm a distinguished professor. Um, I hope to continue to be able to make contributions. I look forward to um, to getting back to research and be able to spend more time doing research. I mentioned I have data from Iran that I have not looked at yet. Um, you know, it's not a country you get a lot of data. You know, it's you know we don't have a good relationship with that as a country. But I had a postdoc from Iran a number of years ago before relations got as bad as they are now. And you know, we have collected some data, and he's waiting patiently I, I, <laughs> for me to get around to doing some more analyses and so forth. So really, as, as, as con- continuing to do the contributions. The interesting thing about being an academic is that there is always an unanswered question. There's always right. something 
to look forward to. And even if you don't think about it yourself, your students think about it. So they come with questions that they want to ask, building on your work or somebody else's work and that, that they, they want you to help them with. So there's always something to look forward to, which is one of the wonderful aspects of this job. Well, you mentioned something. I was a teacher for a number of years, and you're exactly right. The the students, you get more from the students and learn more from the students. That combined 20, 30, 40 people in the classroom bringing up things. Um, you mentioned that you wanted to continue to uh, uh, work on some of these research items and the data that you haven't even looked at yet. Um, more of the recent ones that you've been focusing on over the last three, four, or five years, I, I sense from your Vita, is the gifted uh, and so do you recall when you first started becoming interested in that and, and where that interest started? Because I even I mentioned I showed your uh, Google Scholar and even in 2022, your other two that uh, you wrote that book with the other co-editors even put something out on um, giftedness. And it's actually the giftedness and eminence clarifying the relationship which appeared in the gifted and talented international yeah. journal and yeah, so, giftedness and eminence yeah yeah so, so tell us where you found you know how did you find interest and when did you find interest in uh, the gifted again serendipity so i'm an international student i'm at berkeley i'm in my first year and around um i think february or march i start thinking you know i have a, a a teaching assistantship but that ends when the semester ends and I have four months of summer and I don't have salary <laughs> and I'm not an American, so I can't work off campus. Okay. So I start asking friends um, and, you know, um, classmates, you know, you know about any jobs that are available <laughs> and stuff. And, and one of them said to me, you're, you're a teacher, right? You were a teacher. I said, yes. They said, well, you know, there's this summer program called the Academic Talent Development Program. Uh, actually, I, I don't think it, I'm not sure it had the name yet. It may have been the UC Berkeley Gifted Program at the time. <laughs> we hadn't changed the name yet. And um, and they're always looking for teachers because <laughs> they have, you know, they bring these kids to campus in the summer. Right. And so I went and I spoke to the director and she interviewed me and I got offered a job as teaching um, advanced uh, intro psychology to middle and high school students, to academic talented middle and high school students. And that event, I saw I, over a couple of years and I made it an AP advanced placement psychology class and so forth. And I did that for quite, so really, and so I did that for that first summer. And then the following year, that program was looking for a research assistantship. My teaching assistantship was for one year. So that program was looking for a research assistant and I had taught for them and they liked my work. I applied and I got it. So I became the research assistant to the academic talent development program. And that's where that interest came from. And as I was doing my, my research work, I'm thinking, you know, here we have a group of students who, if they think they're getting an A minus, <laughs> come and ask for extra credit work. Right. Whereas I am studying students who, I'm trying to get them to work a little bit harder to turn a, 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 a C into a B and they don't want to do it. Right, right. right. And what are the differences and 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 and, and uh, similarities and, and stuff? So so it's interesting. Um, one of the things I actually have uh, shown in a couple pieces is that at-risk students, like the students who were hopeful about their future, who are at risk but hopeful about their future, the gifted students have that hope. So that that hope is a promotive factor 
for sure. the students who are not at risk, but it's a protective factor for kids who are at risk. Oh, and so okay. therein is some, so I'm often used uh, not as a control group, give to students not as a control group, but as a comparison group, right? To mm-hmm. see how are they things. And then I got interested in, in how do we, how do these gifted students develop in their own right, right? Mm-hmm. So what keeps them going? And then you eventually, I'm sharing your Vita right now, your CV, and eventually you turn that into becoming the faculty director of the Academic Talent Development Program from 2004 to present. Oh, and here's that one piece that you need to update, Dr. Royal. Right, here. yes, yes. That, that, 2020, that 2021 <laughs> should be to present. That's that's what it should be, I think, Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no, that's good. And then, you know, the, the, the final thing that we do at the end of most of our podcasts is we ask a couple fun questions. So uh, I know you're, uh, thank you so much for your time and, and hanging in there, but I, I've gleaned so much from you. I appreciate it. I do have a couple fun questions for you though. Yeah, so well, thank you again. I've enjoyed it. Good, good. One thing that I usually ask everybody is tell us something unique about yourself. Well, I could I could probably answer about three or four of them well, for it's you. It's so but... funny, right? Because the thing I had been the thing I you know I was thinking about was I, I mentioned it already that I actually conduct choirs. I I know a number of people who are involved in music, but I don't know of any other psychologists who conduct. Um, right. So I I think that that's a, a little unique about myself. I, I guess I should also say I don't know any other psychologists who are named after a major sports figure. If you that's why I use my middle initial Frank C. Worrell, because if you Google Frank Worrell, actually now I come up on the first page. But when I was early in my career, if you Google Frank Worrell, the name that came up was Sir Frank Mortimer McGlynn Worrell, who was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II for his contribution to cricket. Right. Uh, supposedly related to me, my paternal grandfather emigrated to Trinidad from Barbados, where oh, Frank wow. Worrell was born. But we never did meet. He, my paternal grandfather, died. Um, so we never did when he when. Um, my father was young, so we never did meet him and make any connections with the family in Barbados, but I'm supposed to be related. <laughs> and he's passed away now, you know, but he was the first black captain of the West Indies cricket team. Wow. A lot of different links there. I I tried to find while you were talking, I found a website where there was a picture of you with the choir. And I, I wonder if you were... Uh, I was wondering if you were directing or you're part of the choir, but now you kind of elaborated on that for me. So So I conduct. Good, good. One of the other questions that I usually ask and and think about this for a second, uh, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? You know, my favorite theory has really been um, Eric Erickson's psychosocial theory. I think because for me, I think, you know, Erickson was a neo-Freudian. So Freud had a psychosexual theory and Erickson was one of the ones who said, nah, the psychosexual doesn't work for me. Um, I think that the work is psychosocial. And if you read his, his books, for example, I mean, as a theorist, I mean, he's well known, I think, for his contribution to the idea of the study of identity, mm-hmm. right? And personal identity. But what many people don't realize is he recognized the importance of cultural identities as well. He talked about, in, in some of his books about the difficulty for, for Native Americans and African Americans in the context of discrimination and racism in America to develop a healthy sense of identity, right? So that that much of what we see as psychological is really psychosocial, right? Mm-hmm. So my ability to hope, to have hope in the future is dependent on the messages that I, I get from my teachers, from my parents, from the society I live in. What does it say about me? 
as mm-hmm. a person and my ability to contribute right and so 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 eric erickson has sort of been my favorite and it's really funny because i also love the name my sister uh my the oldest of us ma- ma- married um, somebody whose last name was Frank. His last name was Frank. I tried to get her to name one of her kids after me, you know, like Franklin Frank or something. She wouldn't go for it. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I will add that because I just found uh, the Erickson, uh, Eric Erickson on online for you as well. So I'll add that. And then one of the other questions that I ask is, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Um, I'll actually go on the trip, not the project. Um, I would really love to visit Antarctica or, yeah, you know, uh, you know, it's, I think I'm a closet anthropologist at heart. And I think one of the best compliments I ever got from a colleague when he was introducing me is a, a psychologist with one of the best anthropological eyes that he, <laughs> that he knows. <laughs> and I think when you see the research, I do research in, 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 in all of these different cultural contexts, I think that that actually satisfies my anthropological urge. But I, I really would love to see, um, you know, um, a part of the world where there are not a lot of where there are no very few people or the people who are down there just down there to research and so forth. So, so um, you know, um, to see the wonder that makes up. And I grew up in the Caribbean, so that's actually the other. So going to right. a pool is like going to the other side of the <laughs> right from warm to cold. Right, right. Not that I plan to stay there long because I don't like cold that much. But <laughs> it would be interesting to go there. And and the other thing that I remember growing up in um, finding out that. Greenland has more ice than Iceland. Iceland, right. Iceland actually has more green. Those so. are two places I like to go. One of my colleagues and mentors, actually, he's now retired. I think he just recently came back from Iceland. And but he does, he has traveled, I mean, you know, um, all over the world. It's been really wonderful. Uh Frank, do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? You know, I would say to, you know, I, I would say read broadly. Think about when you, and and as you look at movies, as you read books and so forth, how does it connect to the theories that you read to? Because I think the things that resonate with you, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so um, Phineas and Ferb, I don't know if you, you watch cartoons, right? But I used to watch cartoons because in working with kids, you want to be able to talk about what they're talking about. Like Phineas and Ferb are gifted kids. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it sounds cliche to say it, but in a half an hour, you know, they do something miraculous, like visit the moon or whatever. Sure. <laughs> so forth. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I grew up with the Tom Swift books, um, Tom Swift and also with the, you know, um, the five find out as well. We got British and American books. All of these kids who are talents that they were using in a variety of ways, you know, Harriet the Spy, for instance, one can think about it, right? That these are really children developing their talents. So, 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 what are the things that resonate for you in psychology with the life that you're leading, with the things that are outside of psychology? Is a good way to think about where you want to put your your interest, and and then once you've decided what that is. Worry less about becoming a superstar and think about doing good work. If you do good work, (laughs) the rest will follow. Very good advice. Very good advice. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss on the podcast? No, no. Thank you very much for this delightful conversation. 
Um, I'm glad it's happening at the near the end of my career. I was much more reticent when I actually was applying for my first academic job. Um, one of my um, a student who had graduated from Berkeley a few years earlier, he's several years ahead of me, had said he'd look at my statements and stuff before I sent them out. And he wrote back to me and he said, this stiff upper lip, you know, not you've got to sell yourself. This is America. <laughs> you've got to be willing. <laughs> well, that's good advice. Too, right? Uh-huh. right, right. Be yourself. Sell yourself. Yeah. Is, and is and that's an important part. Tasteful self-promotion is part right. of our model. I'll make a model of talent. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Frank, thanks again. You, you've been a delight. I've really enjoyed talking uh, uh, with you and learning more about your journey. Thanks again for being with us. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure on my part. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.